Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is AI music expert, Dr. Martin Clancy. First of all, what's going to happen if TikTok actually is banned in the United States? It's not looking good for TikTok, and we don't know for sure whether that ban will happen, but if it does, it really is going to have an effect on the music business. For one thing, it's going to have an effect on the charts. We're pretty sure that fewer older songs will become new hits. One of the things that TikTok is really good for is taking some older songs and reviving them. Running Up That Hill and Dreams are just a couple, for instance. Then there will probably be fewer one-hit wonders. 70% of all the hits that come from TikTok never reach the charts again. So already 70% of them are one-hit wonders. There's a couple of exceptions, of course, Lil Nas X and Doja Cat, but for the most part, they will probably not ever sniff the charts again. Now, if in fact you have a hit coming through the label system, it's still harder to get on the top 40 than ever, but once you do, you're more likely to have continued success. Another thing that might happen is albums lasting a little longer on the charts. The reason why is because there'll be less churn from all the songs coming from TikTok, There'll be more songs that will be coming from the various albums, and that should keep the album alive a little bit longer. For sure, there's going to be fewer indie and alternative songs that make it to the charts, though, because TikTok is perfect for boosting both of those genres. It's also thought that hits will probably stay on the charts longer. The reason why is whenever a hit actually stays on the charts, it's because there's a second and a third hit from the same album that keeps the big song going. So right now, because there's so much churn coming from the incoming hits from TikTok, that doesn't happen as often. The idea being now, if those aren't happening, then we'll see hits stay a little bit longer. So a TikTok ban would have a lot of ramifications for the music business. I don't think all of them are bad though. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. That's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, a few episodes back, I talked about the Lindrum machine and how it signified the sound of the 80s, but there was actually another sound that was almost as important. There have been a lot of influential electronic keyboards through the years, but one could say that none took the world by storm as much as the Yamaha DX7 did. Being the first commercially successful digital synth, the DX7 is one of the most important milestones in synth history. When it debuted in 1983, its sounds were completely different than anything that came before, and it had the first velocity keyboard and also the first keyboard with aftertouch. The price was expensive, but at $2,000, it was still within reach of most professional musicians. 
At the same time, it had a reputation for being really hard to program and unintuitive at that, and that's because of the additive FM synthesis that was really at the heart of its sound. Until then, all synths used subtractive synthesis, which was somewhat easier to deal with. Multiple generations of artists and music consumers have been traumatized by the glassy, cold, digital-sounding presets, and they pretty much dominated the charts for years. Trent Reznor loved to destroy them on stage, and there's even an anti-DX7 league group on Facebook. But here's something that's pretty amazing. According to The Economist, the E-Piano 1 preset was used on 40% of the number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100, 40% of country number ones, and 60% of R&B number ones just in 1986. Yamaha had hoped to see about 20,000 sold in the first year, but orders came in for over 150,000. As a comparison, Moog only sold 10,000 mini Moogs over the course of 11 years, and even then they couldn't hit demand. The synth market was tiny in those days, but the DX7 showed manufacturers that there was a huge demand for electronic keyboards, and it opened the door for the huge synthesizer market that we have today. My guest this week is Dr. Martin Clancy, who's a musician, academic, and events producer focusing on AI ethics. Martin completed his PhD on AI's financial and ethical implications in 2021 at Trinity College in Dublin and is the editor of Artificial Intelligence in the Music Ecosystem, a new book on AI ethics and human creativity. Martin is also a certified Ableton Live 11 trainer who founded the Irish rock group Tuanua and, as a solo artist, had a series of top 40 hits on the U.S. Billboard dance charts. His music is featured in the 2022 Shinid O'Connor Nothing Compares to You documentary, and recent releases by his melodic techno group Valerifon have appeared in Beatport charts. During the interview, we spoke about having unexpected success as a solo artist, being a certified Ableton trainer, the practical use for AI in music, how AI affects copyright, how difficult it is to legislate AI, and much more. I spoke at Martin via Zoom from Studio in Ireland. I know you started in the music business very early in life. So let's start there. Well, I, that's, I was thinking about this a little bit earlier. So I started, I came out of the, the kind of the post-punk era of music. So I'm 58, just turned 58. So God knows, 65 was when I was born. Um, and I kind of missed the 77 explosion, but I was about 14 and music was just taking off and in, and I fell into it that way. I fell in love with the whole social ethos of the kind of post-punk DIY uh, attitude. And that's completely informed my approach right up to the present for everything that I've done. That's the one con continuity that's there, that kind of appreciation of amateur skills and enthusiasm and a sense of making change and all the things that, are, you know, so that, that was, that was there. And, and how I started professionally was by accident was that I just like, you know, everybody, we play around in our bedrooms with different people. And I was just lucky that the people who I was playing around in music with were actually very talented. And so the first recording I ever made was with uh, a singer called Sinead O'Connor. And I guess nobody knew how big she was going to become, but that kind of launched the band that I was in on a way on, on a wave of getting signed. And so I think I left school around that time, around the time I was 16 and, and I probably didn't return to, for another 10 or 11 years. So 
But in that time, I got to work with loads of great producers and worked in all the great studios and learned the, the traditions that, you know, the things you can't, the thing, a lot of things you would talk about in, on your program. Yeah. Um, so I have a huge appreciation of those skills. Never mastered any of them, but I observed them. Well, we all have to be uh, jack of all trades and master of none, it seems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the, the standard in the business these days, almost. You also had some success as a solo artist as well. Yeah, I, a, lot, a lot of what I've done as, as, is, is a series of, you know, happy accidents mainly. Um, so, you know, the music industry, like a lot of people, I got burnt out by it. Um, I worked in management successfully for a number of years in the business, uh, but I never harbored any interest to ever go back to playing music. It was kind of, so, uh, so accidentally what happened was there was, there's a, a, a festival in New York called the Seaport Music Festival. And the chap who was promoting it, his name is Steve Diemer. Um, my wife knew him and she started sending him tapes that I was making um, at home of kind of just demos under different names. And he thought this was kind of weird and kooky and cheap. So he asked me if I'd be artist in residence and I could do whatever I liked. So I did. And we ended up having a couple of weird disco hits in 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 the like the billboard charts and the CMJ charts. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was lovely. It was kind of, but most, most un, unexpected and uh, unintentional. So, and that led me to Ableton because I started there. I, I was doing interviews. People saying, well, how, how do you make this weird music? And I'd say, well, I'm using Ableton and it's really fun. And, and so that led me back into that area. Yeah. I know you're a certified trainer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of 200 in the world. It's like being a ninja. It's great. <laughs> they should get, oh, a Jedi. Um, and again, I'm, I'm honored to, to, be, to, to actually be, to be that. I'm quite different, I would imagine, than most of the trainers because I don't come from an engineering background. And it's credit to Ableton that they have a, a very holistic approach to, uh, or a Catholic approach to, to different ways to use the, the equipment. Um, so when I went for the... Um, because they do examine you in detail. Um, when I went for the test, I didn't know quite what to expect, but it was it was fantastic, and and they, and they endorsed my kind of uh, unorthodox DIY approach. I knew how the equipment worked, but I wasn't doing it according to any particular ethos. And uh, you know, so what's interesting about Ableton to me is that if you're used to doing um, working in Pro Tools or you know whatever traditional, I'm going to say traditional digital audio workstation, it's hard to get your arms around Ableton. It's a different way of thinking about things. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. So I know when I went there, it was like, oh, uh, this doesn't quite follow what I'm used to. Yeah, I, so I, I think that there are, I mean, the differences with the technology now are not as great as they were. So let's Let's, if we want to talk about Ableton a little bit, let's just have a look at that historically, shall we? Yeah. Um, so when I came back to, to music making, I had left, like I was one of the first, I'd been working in LA and I was one of the first people to, certainly I think in, in Ireland, to bring back a version of Cubase that was on like the Atari. Um, and, but then I kind of stopped. And then it wasn't for maybe another 10 years that I returned to, I went, hey, what's happening with Cubase? And then I went, oh my God, this has changed. Oh, look at this. It's in color and you can use audio and there's rewire. So I rewire reason into 
Cubase, and then I rewired Ableton into Reason. And the part of that is that when Ableton first came out, and this is the reason why it's associated with DJs, was simply because it would put everything in time. And that warping ability for DJs was obviously massive because it allowed anybody to beat match. But I, so I started using them bit by bit. It et up Reason, and then it opened up Cubase. And then that, what you're talking about, I guess the paradigm is, is the session view. So where, but it's, it's called Ableton Live. So it's kind of written on the tin. <laughs> Uh, it happens to be a, a DAW, but it's also has this other non-linear approach. And that's something that to, I guess for people who, for instance, now would grow up using FL Studios, Fruity Loops, there's a, a natural continuum into that. The new generation, of course, that is are using GarageBand, they have their own version of Session View, and now it's in Logic 2. So I think a lot of what the differentiation historically with Ableton technically is, is no longer relevant because its, its influence has been absorbed. But what I think is different about Ableton perhaps is more of a cultural phenomena. So it's always important to remember that when we speak about DAWs like Begoan, Logic, Pro Tools and Ableton, they're the three that are taught in most universities, certainly in, in Europe. So probably know the history of Pro Tools. Logic are owned by you know, quite a big company. So it's one of their products and services. But Ableton is a privately owned company in Germany that hasn't been sold and has a, you know, I think probably 400 people work there. So how does it compete? And I believe it competes because of the community that's around it. The oddballs, the kind of, these are the, you know, the programmers, the hackers, the uh, experimenters. And, and it's not genre-based. And its integration of Max means that you can make your own instruments. And I think that that Max to Live aspect is fundamental to what makes Ableton unique. So in some senses, I guess I'm thinking about it. Maybe it's like, you know, why, why is a Telecaster so great? Well, it's the people who play it that made it great, apart from just the sound of it, you know? Um, so I think, sorry, but that's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of my... okay. Let's switch over to AI and music. Mm. And before we get into it deeply, I want to find out how you started in this. What made you take that direction where you got interested in it? Yeah, well, it directly links to Ableton. So I would teach evening classes in Ableton, which again would be people, for basically anybody who ever wants to usually get back into music or had heard about Ableton, but all ages, all genres, all styles. And I had a very much a, a can-do approach to say, okay, what is it your problem is? And normally it was finishing tracks. So let's, let's just, what's the simplest way, fastest way to get you into a kind of a flow position where you can get your stuff done? And that kind of DIY punky approach worked until I came across tools that were called AI. And I kind of noticed that people's attitude changed. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute here. And I think it was the first version of Neutron that had, do you remember the video for the mixing thing, like the computer is listening now and he had all these kind of like, whatever the button was that the, the dude hit, it all went misty, yeah, right? Yeah. And, I, and, and I went, I showed it to my class and I could see their heads dropping. And I was going, hey, hang on. Whoa, 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 hang on. You're smart guys. Like, they all had, they're smarter than me. They all had really good jobs. They all worked in tech, right? Yeah. And I was going, 
and they were mainly guys. And I went, why, if, if I told you that these were presets, you change them. Why is it that because it's called AI, do you go, oh, well, we're screwed. And, and I went, this is, this is interesting because, well, what does this mean? And it led me to a PhD program, which I was, again, because of my curiosity, I was lucky in my age. Uh, I was I was fortunate that that, that I was I was brought into that, and I just went. Well, what what would it mean, if anything, if machines could make music that was indistinguishable by, and that made by humans, uh, and that led to uh, this research into the ethical and financial implications, and then the subsequent book. I want to talk about your book in a second, but first, let's talk about the ethical ramifications of this, since this seems to be a, a, an avenue that you've followed. Yeah. The, the ethical bit's relatively simple, because the way I looked at it was, I went, who's doing what? That was the first thing, right? Which is all now very interesting. Like, what's going on in academia, big tech, startups? All of it seemed to be based around, pivoted around the issue of copyright, because we know that, certainly in my opinion, copyright is the basis of the music industry. So you either write songs, or you record songs, you play songs live, you do merchandise. That's all, they're all based on copyright. Every other job is, is related to that. So the question was, if music copyright has already been stretched, we know by humans, so we know about all the cases of blurred lines, dark horses, all that stuff about, you know, it's very fragile as it is. Yeah. AI pushes up a whole bunch of issues that I don't believe or I felt would be very difficult to be protected. And I think there's a bunch of legal cases happening right now as well, new ones, which we can talk about as well. So I went, well, if, if the laws are busted flush, what, what do we do if we care? If we care about future of employment, then what does that mean? Is it, do we just go around going, AI is bad, peace is good, or is, you know, like, what else is there? And that's where this term, which I knew nothing about, ethics came in. And ethics for a lot of the, the people in music, including me, was a kind of like, what the, that's a bit of a weird word. It's not so much now, and I can talk a bit about that. Um, but when I think of ethics, ethical AI, I think of equitable AI. So like fair day's play for a fair day's pay or some, I just made that up. It's not great, but you get the idea, right? <laughs> yeah. Like how, like I think it was J Jared Lenia who said, you know, how will anybody get paid in the future? And that's to me was the, the part that grips my fo focus in all of the work is like, like I've worked, you asked me, I started off when I was 15. I've known I managed to be at different stages in the shadows of some very talented or very successful people, but I was also able to make a very good living doing the jack of all trades, different things at different stages. And I, I, I do worry as time has gone on, how that will, you know, that those opportunities for what we would have called the middle class or the working class in music, how will that uh, exist? And at a time when copyright is at an all time high, it's kind of counterintuitive that it's so hard to, for people to get by. So ethics is my uh, approach to figuring that out. And also quite practically, how do you, if you think you need an ethical solution, what would that look like? And how would that go into practical use? You know, I just wrote a blog post and it stemmed from an article I saw actually, and it was about sample detection via Google's AI assistant. And someone was clever enough to be able to insert the music, the actual music into Google's AI, Google assistant, 
and it was able to figure out not only the song, just like Shazam, but it could also go deeper and figure out what it was based on, all the samples, right down to a half-second sample that was time-stretched. The gist of my blog post was, well, this changes everything in terms of, first of all, what's going to happen with the legality of it, because now you're going to see teams at record labels and management companies that are just going to be looking over the last 25 years of songs. Okay, what did we miss? And then the second thing would be, how does that get incorporated into things like uh, YouTube content ID, where now it's already difficult to upload a cover song, but imagine what it's going to be like in the future when all of a sudden, you know, there are alarm bells going off. Okay, this is, you know, you didn't license it. And even if you did, figuring out how to tell it that you did. So there's all these different roads that open up as a result. And, And it was an unintended consequence, actually, of this. Okay, and I like the idea. I have no legal training, do you? No. Excellent. Right, so certain of your listeners will go, oh my God, what are those guys talking about, okay? But let's give it a go, all right? So this is, we are not lawyers, but this is my understanding of the common law principles of this. The first one is, is the half a second, which sounds like a very long time, is, you know, it's kind of an infinite gap when it comes to the unsupervised machine learning things like, say, for instance, with JubeDeck or WaveNet. What's that like? Because they are using like 16,000 samples per second. So you get half a second, so you're down to 8,000 samples. I mean, you're, you're going into kind of beyond like granular synthesis on steroids. And legally, there's a term called de minimis, which is uh, what is, again, I have no Latin, but I do believe it means that is but a mere trifle. And the basis of sampling, you know, certainly in Europe has always been that it has to be substantial as well. So when we're getting into this area of sampling, whether the law stands up or it doesn't stand up, especially if it was to be tried by juries, it, it's phenomenal. I mean, could you measure that on blockchain with new creations? I hope so. I think I think it's definitely going to be movements towards creating protocols of micropayments that just makes sense it's good practice but it's also a pandora's box of impossibilities once we open this and think that okay like sampling as we know it this is beyond 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 our our our, our notions passing off is is part of the legal side that might be stronger do you know what i mean for instance where you're training models the idea of I find personally the idea of opting out to be really weird. Like, why should you have to opt out? Surely you should opt in. Yeah, like, yeah. It is peculiar. There's a few legal cases that are happening at the moment. I made a couple of notes of them. If you'd like me to chat to you about them. Sure, you might, yeah. sure. So in Europe, we have, um, the first big one is, is that we have uh, the EU AI Act, which is being drafted. And... While it specifically doesn't mention music, it does mention audio. And we have this category of high risk and then four other ones below. So the high risk one, effectively, it means if the AI has a gun, well, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep an eye on that. However, the interpretations of it keep moving while, and, and it shows you how, it does show how hard it is to legislate AI. So, it was mentioned earlier in the week that, for instance, uh, ChatGPT could 
potentially be a high-risk category if it was all involved in certain types of content being generated. So that's the first one. The second one is an American case, which is Gonzalez versus Google, which you may be familiar with, which deals with Safe Harbor. And I'm sure you're very familiar with how Safe Harbor principles created uh, Google and Facebook and contributed to the present uh, music uh, industry that we have. Um, so the Gonzalez versus Google case could have massive ramifications because it does mean that the, and again, in the cases of someone like ChatGPT, that the content that's produced um, would actually be, in that case, it would go back, we'd see them as, the, as to go beyond the user and go back to the content provider. So back to the service provider, back to OpenAI. There was a case uh, with in America, I think it was last week or certainly very recently with the Copyright Office, which I'm just going to try and get this correctly, so I wrote it down with uh, Christina Kashtanova. Are you familiar with this? Mm, this, no. this is a graphic comic called Zara, Zara of the Dawn. Um, and in this co comic, um, the artists had produced, used Midjourney to create images and and it was granted copyright, and then it was revoked. And the reasons it was revoked, I found particularly interesting, yeah. I remember it now, yes, go ahead. Yeah, and the reason was that because it said that, I have a quote here, it's not possible to predict what mid-journey would do ahead of time. Effectively, it was too random a creation. And the copyright was, thinking, was granted in 2017, I think. But, but, but what we have with the case, though, is the idea that randomization and now now in law, randomization uh, is and chance is, is means that a machine cannot be, you know, the copyright can be questioned. When I think about Ableton, Ableton 11, the whole thing was based on creating new chance and randomization tools. In fact, you know, so you go, does that mean that your work that you do in Ableton can't be copyrighted? Clearly not, but you can see where it gets strange. If you were to go, any music that used obscure strategies or used chance techniques uh, did not have a sufficient amount of creativity from the old, I mean, clearly it's nonsense, but this has to be interpreted. And the fourth one, by the way, is currently in the London uh, High Court, I think, with a chap called Stephen Thaler and his creativity mach uh, machine uh, looking for granting uh, patents uh, for AI. And he's always in the courts. Don't know why. Um, he's just got a, some, some, some mission to get this through. Um, but they're the ones to watch. They're, they're, they're the current four. Martin, doesn't it come down to, as far as copyright is concerned, so determining who owns the copyright in a uh, an AI generated whatever it is, and how much human interaction is required in order for it to become copyrightable? Yeah, I, I, I well legally yes, practically that's going to be tricky to to work through. Now I'm currently working with a, a number of labels in America a number of different parts of the business to, to kind of see how feasible and how this might be worked through. And I do think that it, that the way is to move towards a, a level of identification of this. 
It's also just very tricky to consider, though, how, when you have certain tools, like an example occurred with um, you know, ChatGPT. So if you work on ChatGPT for, and you ask it a series of questions, you develop it, and you work it through, you work it through at the end. At the end, it's computer-generated text, but it's not going to generate it on its own. Yeah, yeah, it needs the prompts in order to do it, yeah. And the edits, and... You know, of all the promise of it being quicker, sometimes it's not because uh, it can go off. So if the output of ChatGPT is regarded as not created by humans, it's because it's the process, not the actual, it focuses on the the system and not the actual, imp, imp, uh, the part of the human. That needs to be figured out. Now, thankfully, with music, we're ahead of this. So I think that it can be baked in at an earlier stage if the willingness is there um, on behalf, and this is where the ethical part comes in. If we go, look, this is important because people need to be paid. The companies, certainly the big ones are, uh, they have bigger fish to fry. So open AI, deep mind, you know, they're busy. Their, their plan is their, their mission stated mission plan is AGI. So, um, and that's, you know, artificial general intelligence, AI smarter than you, me or Prince. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think they're, they're bothered about becoming record company moguls. So I think that with a, with a sensible conversation to say, hey, look, how can we do this and create this as a design feature into your systems? I think that that's possible, you know, but the conversation needs to happen now very quickly. But doesn't it go a little deeper than that in terms of what content was used to train the AI and was it copyrighted material Entirely. And what does that mean as a result? There are cases I've seen already about that. Maybe not in court cases, but there have, I know some of the graphic AI. Yep. Have, Getty, Getty, Getty Images have Getty. got it going. Yeah. Stable Diffusion. Stable is, Diffusion. Is heading that. Yeah. And I think that there's no question about the fact that if you're training, like what I saw, let's work our way back. What I thought about when I saw Duke, Jukebox, which was the open AI system. You know the one there. Yeah. That was two years ago. So when you hear it now, it sounds a bit junky. Or you, could, if you Don't worry about the fidelity. But the principle was you put a bunch of, you put all Frank Sinatra's recordings into a jukebox and it will produce new original compositions and recordings. And that just blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's remarkable. That has to be uh, acknowledged. And those training sets need to be completely like like accredited and the traditional forms of copyright have to adhere for me that's that's a, that goes without that saying because it's the law and it's also how we work well in that model yes for sure but what if you're talking about a a large language model where again it's being trained by something and it's being trained across a large data set where it's not only from frank sinatra for instance it's from an era of music if not more. Exactly. Well, if you think about Whisper, which is the one that when ChatGPT came out, Whisper kind of got ignored a little bit. But Whisper is, was tra is trained on 73 years of, of audio. Maybe it's not 73 years, but you get the general gist. So yeah, in that sense, you do need to have the, uh, ex you know, the explainability factor to go, okay, now you've created something. What did you, what did you, like, why, where did that come from? Yeah. Because 
That's all of our conversations. That's all the information that's there. And when that's combined with, you know, a text-to-image generators, which will probably GPT-4, GPT-5, or multimodal models where it's not longer just text, it's... It, that's where it gets fascinating. The other one that's fascinating is where is is the kind of nomadic APIs. So where you we think about these now in a very traditional way, but where like Stable Diffusion's uh, API was put into two hundred thousand products and services, it's only beginning to emerge now in ways that are un- unimaginable, unthinkable. I mean, again, that's a testament to human ingenuity as well. But this morphing protein nature of AI generation, it is impossible for us to imagine what that's like. And then we have to consider the new art forms that are being used where we combine different ones. So for instance, generated music, but generated text. So have you seen these new movies, for instance, that are appearing that are combinations of five or six different generations? This is incredible, but legally, wow, how the hell, right? So. What you have to, my feeling about that is, is that there is plenty of work for lawyers, plenty of work for AI lawyers, and lots of things to do digging there, and definitely. But above all of that, an ethical framework, pragmatic ethical framework that says, hey, let's try and figure this out so that work is a design feature in this, because we don't, you know, yeah. there is absolutely no reason to for it to destroy when, it could, this could be great. Let's talk about your book. I didn't actually read it, but I, I went through the table of contents and I noticed that it was, um, it, you edited content from interviews with others, from papers from others. And I'm curious how that came about. Yeah. So I've come to understand that what I do is transdisciplinary research. And what that term means is, is actually a, a quite clear to me it means that you work in academia you work in enterprise and you work in the, you work in everywhere you bring everything together and that seems like hey that's kind of cool right like kind of free jazz improvisation yeah man we have we bring everything into this to the table but it technically is a bit of a problem when you're doing for instance in my case a phd because it means that you have to be an expert in a whole load of different things so your curiosity can bring you from coding to law to ethics to philosophy, to musicology. And at each stage, you're going, holy the hell am I gonna, you know? So the book was an attempt to go, okay, I've identified a number of (laughs) these interrelated disciplines that are not necessarily recognized as being related. What if I could get people who know a lot more about these things or have dedicated their life to that to answer the question that I'm asking? Like, what do you think and do you care? And if so, what do you reckon? And that was it. And that was the email that I sent to people. And I just went, like, I, I didn't know, like, Miller Puckett, who, who created Max or um, Pure Data. I didn't know uh, Gil Weinberg at Georgia Tech. I kind of had seen Shimon, that the, the, the robot. So there was like, Jacques Attali had written a book 40 years ago. He's a friend. I don't know if you know Jacques Attali, but like, he's... He was economic uh, advisor to Mitterrand and uh, Sarkozy, written 100 books. But in 1977, when he was a civil servant, he wrote this very short book called Noise, where he predicted everything. Like, 
everything that we're experiencing. And I read it and I was going, now, he's obviously got a time machine because this is kind of spooky <laughs> that this kid right, would write this book going, you know, there's a composing network where, you know, uh, the algorithm, I think, oh, how, how, what are these words even there in 1977, right? So I wrote to him and said, uh, dear Monsieur Tally, um, listen, you know, the book you wrote 40 years ago, was that AI by any chance? He went, we. And then, so he was gracious enough to be interviewed. Uh, Holly Herndon obviously is a, a leading exponent of uh, the front line of uh, AI and creativity and also dealing with the rights as well as going, this stuff is great fun. And then Scott Cohen was extraordinarily gracious to, to come on board and go, yeah, let's talk. And it's really clear from the industry perspective. And what's, what's kind of curious in reading the book is that different strands come in at different places and you realize that somebody in robotics is saying the same thing as somebody in, you know, as a musician is saying. And it's that part that I think is interesting because that gives a, a framework that I think that for other researchers, but also for us to kind of figure out how to do the join in all of this, you know, yeah. like there was, I was writing about ethics. I couldn't get anybody else to write about it. any of the chapters I wrote was because nobody else would do them. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I wrote about law and I wrote about ethics and about philosophy. So the one about ethics, I had this thing going, well, what about um, whose ethics? You know what I mean? Like, is it white guy, Western ethics? You know, the big world, music industry is global. Um, and then a bunch of researchers went, yeah, well, he's got a point. So they went off and interviewed 25 um, musicologists and data scientists in uh, South, uh, Southeast Asia and Northern India. And they're in the book going, no, we think this. And you're going, okay, there's a whole lot of funky new ways to, like, just, you know, again, I just, I'm excited about what could, what can come out of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think, I think that's where we need to be pushing to, to, um, to embrace this, uh, in a way that, that makes sense, you know, I mean, it's realizable. And, and after, you know, the brushes that we've had with anybody who went through the Napster era, it knows what can happen. And with last year's kind of crypto crash, everybody knows about how things can go extremely hot and then cold. So I do think like, like I'll give an example. So I came up with an idea for a, effectively a fair trade system for identifying, um, good practitioners, for instance, people not just using generative AI, but also applying themselves to ethical values within music, trying to close this value gap. And I went around to the industry, I spent about 18 months, and I was lucky enough to get it on a very high level. So people like Scott Cohen, at the time where the head of Warners were introducing me, and the general sense was, yeah, do you really think this is a problem? Or, um, and I gave up after, you know, life, like, life is short, especially when you get to my age, right? So. Um, I went, let's just leave that be. I don't, I, I, I'm, I don't need a crusade. But about six months ago, I started getting phone calls going, um, hey, you remember that thing you were talking about? Mm. And I'm going, oh, great. No longer is the question. So I think that there's a willingness and, and, and there's an opportunity that could be, you know, so if what I'm saying there is, if any of your listeners, uh, if you have any listeners still left after having me speaking for so long, um, are interested in this area, um, 
uh, I'm working on, on this and I'm not alone. There's a lot of people pushing forward with this. It needs to be done quickly. Um, I think it will. And um, I'm optimistic about where it could go. And then it, I think, you know, we might as well look towards creating something uh, inspiring and, and, you know, the very things that got us all involved in music originally. One last question, which has nothing to do with AI, but maybe it does. What's the best piece of advice that someone gave to you or maybe you learned along the way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I read as a book. The best book I ever read about the music industry was William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, which doesn't say anything about music, but I read it, unfortunately, after I was dropped by Warner, uh, Virgin Records. And I was kind of going, mm. and it's the famous quote of he has that nobody knows anything. He's talking about the fact that uh, success afterwards, everybody goes, well, you know, this is the reason why it occurred. So I've used that in all of them I teach uh, to understand everything. And I thought maybe when we came to the AI age, maybe now, maybe something does know something, you know, because AI is about prediction. But I'm now more convinced than ever that, that phrase is our guideline, our empowering, our sense of, yes, our future is, is not written. We can change things. I used it with my class where we took all of these new tools and I was sh amazed by the results that came out, like genuinely went, actually, we may have stumbled across a new teaching methodology with these tools that actually creates work. I, it was, I was not expecting it. Um, so while it's anecdotal, I don't want to get too carried away about that. I'm definitely working to uh, expand that idea that nobody knows anything is going to be the future, the way we need to go as humans. You can find out more about Martin and his book at martinclancy.eu. That's martinclancy.eu. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 